Welcome to Belling History with the Good Time Girls, a hyper-local podcast about the quirky history of Bellingham, Washington, and the fourth corner of these United States. Even though we like to keep things close to home, these stories are no less entertaining to the masses and those who find themselves, unfortunately, outside of the PNW. We are your hosts. I'm Colby. And I'm Ren. And we are the co-owners of Belling History Tours, also known as the Good Time Girls. If you want to know more about our tour business, visit our website at bellinghistory.com. Today's episode is called Bathing Beaches of Bellingham Part 1. Or, bathing beaches are good, thinly veiled racism is bad. You'll understand that. (laughs) It will all unfold. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about some of Bellingham's bathing beaches of yesteryear, and some of the places where old-time Bellingham like to cool their heels in the summertime months. Most of these places are long gone. We're actually going to do this in two parts, and today we're going to mainly focus on the so-called White City at Silver Beach at Lake Whatcom, which was our very own sort of mini Coney Island-style resort. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about resorts at Squalicum Beach and Fort Bellingham, which are slightly less known, but followed in the footsteps of White City, for sure. So speaking of Coney Island, and we'll like set the stage, let's talk for a minute about beach resorts and tourist attractions and the history of that. Do you want to tell us some about that, Ren? Yeah, sure. Funnily enough, the beginning of the bathing beach in history has a tie-in with our last two episodes. If you will recall, we talked about natural medicine and the sanopractic folks up here in the PNW. And in the mid-1800s, natural remedy doctors began prescribing the fresh sea air of the beach to cure all kinds of ailments. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> From depression to rheumatism to female problems of No ailment couldn't benefit from a trip to the sea. Prior to this medical trend, the beaches and the shorelines had been mostly a place of danger and or industry. Much like our own shoreline here in Bellingham, many of these beaches were places for dumps or outlets for rudimentary sewers, or they were docks for boats or littered with trestles for trains. Places of leisure or healing, they were not. Also prior to the 1800s, the word vacation (laughs) meant to miss work or be absent from your job. It did not have the pleasant connotation that it does today. And that is to say that with demands of everyday life and the difficulty in just surviving up to that point, most people could not even fathom taking time out to vacation as we know it. This all changed. Obviously, in the 1800s, we see the Industrial Revolution, which created a middle class, and then labor laws provided actual weekends. <laughs> so, yay! So suddenly a trip to the beach was not so hard to imagine, and the gods of capitalism spoke into existence bathing resorts and public beaches. <laughs> So yeah, we know people here in the PNW were excited to hit the beaches during those precious few summer months, but our beaches up here, especially in the Puget Sound, not quite the golden sands of California or Florida or Hawaii, but that didn't stop us. Colby, where were some of these early bathing destinations in the Beeham? Yeah, so presumably in the earliest days, people swam just sort of casual-like and wherever they could, but 
over time and with enough people, the whole beach resort idea pops up here as well, with people capitalizing on folks' urge to bathe with amenities. So we have some references as early as the 1890s to people organizing official bathing beaches with bathhouses, which is just changing rooms, sometimes even with showers. Fancy. So in 1891, J.T. Adams set up the Bellingham Bay Bathing Resort at Wooden's Wharf. That was over in Fairhaven. And they said, quote, All who want a good saltwater plunge can secure it here. Mr. Adams has fitted up good dressing rooms, and the attendance is excellent. We also get an early reference to people bathing at Squalcombe Beach that same year. Whether or not there was a bathhouse or any amenities yet, we're not sure, but this was said. Complaint that men with enough money to buy good bathing suits persist in bathing at Squalcombe Beach in a very aboriginal attire to the embarrassment of some of the refined ladies of the city. They ought to have better sense. <laughs> aboriginal. <laughs> so yeah, right? Let's talk for a second about what kind of bathing attire would they they have been wearing or supposed to wear in the 1890s. <laughs> supposed to wear. Let's let's talk about that. In the 1890s, we got the last gasp of the Victorian era. We're headed into Edwardian. Edwardian, the Edwardian <laughs> era. Wow. But the, this would have seen women at the beach covered in cotton or linen. We would have seen bloomers and oversized voluminous swimming frocks with many layers. Plus, they would have weights at the hems that would prevent the dresses from floating up and revealing too much. Dear God. Doesn't that sound comfortable? (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) So heavy. And then to prevent any possibility of show through from the waist down, women would wear black stockings. Like just the most (laughs) comfortable. I just wouldn't go. Or I'd be one of the nakedly, I'd, you know, be arrested. Yeah. So we have another lovely reminiscence by local history columnist and author George Hunsby, who is just such a treasure trove of local history tidbits. And it's nice to give a firsthand account of someone who actually went to some of these places and saw what the beaches were like. So when would you like to read this that really illustrates about these swimsuits? Yep. Gosh, I love George Hunsby. And you guys are going to love him too. <laughs> He's going to be your best friend we quote as well. Him a lot. Yeah. <laughs> You'll hear a lot it's more from quotable. him. Very <laughs> quotable. Uh, But he said, in reference to the bathing suits of the time, he said, That beach was really a scream for when the young ladies got togged up in the bathing suits of that era. They looked more like circus clowns, and any feminine beauty that those girls may have possessed was completely lost in those atrocious outfits. I never saw any woman go out and get completely submerged since they would have sunk to the bottom from the sheer weight of the clothing. (laughs) I I admit that I've had a vintage suit not... That vintage, but even ones from like the 50s and 60s, there's a lot of fabric and layers and like foundation. Yeah. And when you get out of the water wearing one of them, it just like drains water for 10 minutes, just (laughs) dripping, pouring off you. It's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) They're not really meant for actual swimming. I think it's more for just like being near the ocean. Being cute. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think at these at this time too, men were pretty covered up. I mean, we had, I guess yes. they were talking the Aboriginal bit, right? Who knows what? We're I can only, only imagine. I know, but you know, a tank top and some shorts was definitely yes. 
We'll come back to that too, because yeah, and the fashion for men pretty much paralleled women. They were a little more bare armed and legged, yes. but still like shorts and you know chest covered mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So maybe they were like shirtless or something, and they were like, yeah, <gasps> man boobs. <laughs> yes, those rock hard abs of the coal miners down there. All right, so okay, Lake Whatcom, <laughs> getting me distracted. <laughs> so Lake Whatcom was also an enticing destination for bathing, also picnicking and boating and all that kind of good stuff, fishing. But it really got its start as a resort also in the 1890s when Silver Beach was still just an unincorporated community outside of the city limits. But real estate was booming at the time all over the area. In 1891, Reginald Jones, and I love this name, Edward Fitzgerald Guavas Carleon. Wow. <laughs> or EFG Carleon, as it's normally written, because that's <laughs> yeah. a mouthful. Fair enough. But uh, they built a hotel at Silver Beach with luncheon, dance, and first-class accommodations. These were both well-off English dudes who were just here wheeling and dealing in real estate. Yeah. They found a they found a good spot for it because Silver Beach Hotel was located on the bend in the Poplar Drive between North Shore Drive and Academy Streets, and it was first reached only by horse-drawn carriage or hotel stage. But in 1892, streetcar service began to the lake. In 1893, there was a financial panic and bubble burst, and Jones and Carleon wound up suing each other and declaring bankruptcy. So the beautiful hotel was in peril. The hotel turned now into a, oh, here's another throwback, into a sanatorium briefly in the 1893. Of course. I mean, of course. <laughs> what didn't? What do you do with an old hotel? Yep. And tangentially, this was actually a rehab sanitarium where this Panter, Panter Improved Remedy Company used, oh gosh, bichloride of gold treatments to cure those who habitually indulge liquors, morphine, opium, cocaine, and and tobacco. So this is like a real <laughs> pick your poison. Just a detox. Yeah. That we would think of today, right? Apparently there weren't a lot of folks signing up. <laughs> Which is not surprising in the Pacific Northwest. We will just keep our vices. Thank you very much. And then the company did not renew their lease after a year. So now we've got this <laughs> empty hotel, a lot of ups and yes. downs. And another important event that occurred in 1893 that is central to our story is the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. So that's the first U.S. World's Fair. It was huge in so many ways. Like this debuted all kinds of inventions and revolutionary industry concepts and all of this. I mean, this is like steampunk land here. There's just (laughs) electrical devices and gadgets, the site of the first Ferris wheel. People traveled from all over to go to this fair. It was just huge. It had impact on culture. The fairgrounds featured this fancy neoclassical architecture, and the buildings were light in color or painted white, and the whole place was lit at night by thousands of incandescent lights. So the whole place just glowed, Mm -hmm. and that got it the nickname The White City. And that name is kind of on the nose seeming today once you realize the whole Vare concept is pretty fraught with some problematic shit. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the timing of the fair was celebrating the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus. Oh yeah, that great guy. Yeah, lovely man. Uh, Hence the name the Columbian Expedition. So that's fucking great. So there's your start to the uh, 
racist undertones. And then people of color were barred entirely from participating, other than on the Midway, which was essentially like a circus freak show, as it specialized in spectacles of barbarous races. That is a quote. But for the purposes of our story, for what it's worth, inspired by the fair, amusement parks sprung up everywhere bearing the name White City and copying this Chicago World's Fair. And at any rate, it had become a generic term for an amusement park, and there were thousands of them across the country. Yeah. So meanwhile, at Silver Beach, there was still just a hotel, which survived the rainy months because it had the only bar and booze for (laughs) miles around. So you'd take your little boat over to Silver Beach Hotel and hang out in the fancy bar. Yeah. Saloon. Sounds good. Sounds pretty sweet. Those people were like out in the woods at this point. So that was probably pretty bad. Yeah. (laughs) But they started making some improvements in the early 1900s. The dance pavilion was added and an ice cream confectionery, Marshall's Place and others. A guy named Maples built a shoot the shoots at the lake, which I think is like boats slide down into the water and then are pulled back up by a cable. Basically what I think of as the log ride. The log ride, (laughs) right? (laughs) So it started to have a more of a resort feeling there. Yeah. I love the idea of those early amusement park rides and the shoot the shoots just like screams P and W. The idea, yeah, it was simple. You ride a boat down some sort of big slope and into the water where you skim along at high speeds. Of course, this idea, like Colby said, the log ride, this is still (laughs) popular today in parks across the world. But in those early days, the job of getting the boat back up the hill in White City was probably, you know, there was probably a cable, but some poor schmuck and his manpower alone (laughs) went to get the boat and get it all hooked back up. I can't even imagine it was a well-paid gig, but... Hopefully it paid off in some swole muscles <laughs> and the attention of some potential loves, lovers. <laughs> yeah, log ride. Um, <laughs> so in 1906, in May, a Pittsburgh capitalist, C.H. Chandler, visited Lake Whatcom as the guest of William Gwynn, a Bellingham realtor. So these two guys go fishing and Gwyn really sells Chandler on and he falls in love with the place and they're like, let's have this great amusement park. It's going to be awesome. So Chandler, you know, puts a bunch of money in, buys the hotel, buys a bunch more land. So they formed the Silver Beach Amusement Company, installed a merry-go-round, a 75-foot Ferris wheel, and a roller coaster. So they opened in September of 1906, and more than 3,000 people reportedly rode the roller coaster. But note that that's kind of late in the season to open an amusement park. So they were only open for like two months basically (laughs) before they closed for the winter. But they were like, we're coming back next year with Better than ever. Better than ever. Yeah, I can't imagine being there in October. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently a lot of people went because it was like a new thing to do. And yeah, the only thing to do. The only thing to do. (laughs) Yeah, they added, so they added more attractions for the next and subsequent years. They added a toy railroad, a natatorium, which is another word for a swimming pool, baseball diamonds, a bear pit, concession stands, game booths, a vaudeville theater, a quote, Chinese village. Whatever that is. (laughs) But it sounds very reminiscent to that Chicago Fair Midway that we were talking about. Um, Yeah, gawk at exotic people. They just put exotic Mm -hmm. people in little dioramas of what their countries would look like. And um, then you go and pay money to see them. The bear pit. You want to talk a little bit about the bear pit? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, there's there's actually a picture where you can kind of see it, and it's labeled on maps as Bear Pit. Just bear Pit. And it just looks like some kind of concrete round, I mean, maybe not concrete, but like some kind of structure, mm-hmm. maybe half underground, but there's a definite structure. Yeah, and there's a fence up on the top. Yeah. It's like wooden, yeah. fancy thing. Yeah, and apparently, I mean, because they labeled it Bear Pit, like everybody just knew what a bear pit was, apparently. Yes. Because <laughs> there was no further well, explanation yeah, you needed. See, I, I've seen references to bear pits. And yeah. I was just like, I guess that's a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I did a little, a quick Google and found. <laughs> on the Wikipedia a little article for bear pits and it, this and they said I it was like quote this is the most traditional way to keep bears for entertainment, you know, entertainment. <laughs> so I think probably just the safest way to keep a bear in a pit and basically dig a pit and then put a fence up above and then you could look down into right. that was the safest way to do it because probably cage like cages you'd have to really prevent people from sticking their oh, hands yeah. and fingers in there because yeah. people will do that i know and it's just so sad i mean how do i don't but that was entertainment back in yeah back in the day. So it's I've heard the story of the bear pit is that there was two cubs whose mother had been shot, and so they took these cubs and put them in said bear pit for people to come and look at right. until they got too big and ferocious, and then they met the same fate <laughs> as their mother. As their mother. Oh, Charming. fun! I yeah, know. bring down the kids. <laughs> The bear pit. <laughs> what else do we have? Change going the subject on here. Besides bears, uh, they also hired the famous Davenports to entertain the crowds, and these quote the foremost funambulists of the coast. Among the many stunts performed, running backward and forward on a tightrope, walking across the wire blindfolded, wheeling a large wheelbarrow across the rope. <laughs> And for the grand finale, the couple rode a bicycle across the wire. In case you wondered what funambulists means, I guess it's all of those things. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's fun. Yeah. So when White City opened on Memorial Day in May of 1907, there was reportedly about 10,000 people, which is a lot. Damn. Yeah. The whole thing worked out with streetcars who were making the money hauling lots of people out there. So they would hook a bunch of streetcars together oftentimes and just had frequent, frequent trips going out to the lake. And the grounds were rented out for company and club picnics and religious retreats. And the owners, they wanted a beer garden. But in 1908, Silver Beach was annexed to the city of Bellingham. Thus, a license to sell beer would have to be granted by said city. And said city was like, no, sorry, white city. (laughs) So they couldn't have any alcohol, including the hotel, which had formerly had the only booze around. So Yeah. Oh, I think we're doomed. I know. Way to (laughs) shoot him in the foot. Coming. In May of 1908, one of the biggest events in the history of the city of Bellingham occurred at the arrival of the Great White Fleet. There's another mention of that. The white is always included in these. And don't be mistaken. It's thinly veiled, but it's thin. President Roosevelt sent the U.S. Navy battle fleet around the globe between 1907 and 1909. And they were essentially a showpiece of American goodwill. Quote, unquote. Here's America's goodwill. We're going to send a bunch of fucking crazy battleships around to all of your countries. Just... Just to show you what we got in our pants. Effectively demonstrating this growing American military power. I've heard it called, quote, the big stick. The big stick, yeah. (laughs) Seven battleships containing 
3,500 Jackies under the command of Rear Admiral Sperry landed at Seaholm Dock and then paraded on Elk, or what we now know as State Street and Holly Streets. Among the many entertainments, free food and rides were offered at White City. Unfortunately, though, a tragedy occurred that marred the whole event when two sailors were killed after they fell under the wheels of a streetcar, which was on the lake line bound for the White City. Kind of put a damper on the day. Uh, The streetcars were packed and there were multiple cars all linked together to accommodate all of these crowds and four sailors jumped on the fender and were chased off by the conductor but apparently jumped back on again right when the streetcar started to move and that's when a chain snapped and it caused the men on the fender to be thrown off two on the edges lived but the guys in the middle fell under the wheels I know. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it was all fun and games until the Jackies jumped on the streetcars. Yeah. Later that summer in 1908, White City advertised Airship Week with the headline, Monster Airship at White City. This is so steampunk. Here we go again. So there's a guy <laughs> named Captain Moore brought his, quote, airship, which is, I think, like a big dirigible type blimp type thing. Oh. And it was described as the first time an airship had been seen in the state of Washington. So Captain Moore was scheduled to make ascensions every day of the week. Here's a description. Quote, There were many explanations of surprise and wonder as the frail-looking craft was taken out of its big tent. The weights were adjusted carefully. Captain Moore climbed aboard. The engine was started. Shifting himself to the rear of the airship and ordering the attendants to let go, Captain Moore was off. Without a falter, the machine began to go up steadily and carefully until it reached a height of 300 feet or more. Looking like a picture used to illustrate a weird tale of fiction, Captain James Moore, in his Airship America, sailed over the White City last night while crowds of spectators stood on the ground in open-mouthed wonder at the feet. At all times, Captain Moore had his strange-looking craft under perfect control, and as he circled about high over the heads of those on the ground, cutting figure eights up around the Ferris wheel and the roller coaster, those on the ground marveled at his nerve and the wonderful ability of his machine. The two ascensions he made yesterday swell the total number of the times Captain Moore has gone up in the America to 172. So a side note, Captain Moore, a year later... Went down in flames in the America when literally um, <laughs> a spectacular accident in California. So the propeller somehow hit the balloon and tore a hole in it and gas poured out, causing a great explosion while he's in the air. So he plummets from the sky in flames and um, died. Yeah, that'll do it. I mean. <laughs> and we I, we just looked at a picture of this. Oh, my gosh. Of this um, yes. dirigible. We found a picture. The airship. It's. What, do you, what did you think it looks like? <laughs> I was amazed. It's not like the Hindenburg. It's not pretty and svelte. It's like, it looks like a big potato. Yeah. I thought <laughs> I was like a potato. ham. Yeah, ham. Like, because it has net over it. It kind of looks like one yeah. of those crisscrossy ham looking thing. Yeah. And it's not any one shape. It's kind of lumpy yeah. and yeah. bumpy. It looks like a smashed lemon or a yeah. yam. It's not the most beautiful thing, <laughs> but... 172 times. I guess yeah. he probably got it up to maybe 200 yeah. by the time he he died. But, I mean, wow, people were just kind of obsessed with air travel of all <laughs> yeah. kinds. It was a big thing. It was a big deal. So the picture also of the people standing around it was so great. All of the, oh, my gosh, the Edwardian beauty of it all. Mm, the, the hats. Boat hat, <laughs> boater hats and, oh, big, big women's hats. It's 
spectacular. But speaking of spectacular accidents, uh, there were a lot of balloon ascensions and skydiving exhibitions. And supposedly at White City during one parachuting event, a trained dog parachuted from a hot air balloon. And then the dog drowned in the lake before it could be rescued. <laughs> traumatizing all of the children watching. Yikes. So yeah, luckily we didn't we didn't see Captain Moore go down in flames, but I think I would be more traumatized by the doggy drowning in the lake. I know, that's so sad. It's so sad. Oh. Animals kind of had it rough at the White City. And the Humane Society complained about the treatment of the deer that were at White City. They had some captive deer. And they said, quote, The management of the White City at Lake Whatcom protests against the report sent to the Humane Society to the effect that the deer at the park are suffering. It is stated that the deer are fat and in fine condition, but cannot be induced to stay in the shelter provided for them. And for that reason, some people have conceived the idea that they are neglected. Those are the same deer. They were bought by the cemetery, uh, <laughs> where they were then, they remained an attraction, which is yeah, weird. At the cemetery. Yeah. It's like, why get a menagerie going on at the cemetery to go yeah, check well, out while you're there? <laughs> and you thought, yeah, the White City and the animals were depressing. Try going to the cemetery to see the animals. <laughs> like, we just didn't care. Uh, deers are deers. Sometimes. And I love that. I mean, they were probably the best cared for at that point they were living high yeah. and getting out getting out of their little enclosure running around sounds like a great life for yeah deer. so well let's throw in a little bit more of george hunsby oh, yes. just to counteract all that <laughs> he'll lighten it up yeah he do you want to read yeah quote from Giro georgie hunsby says in the old days the main entertainment center in all of whatcom county was located on the shore of lake whatcom across the street and east of the end of the streetcar line it boasted a hotel that contained quite a number of rooms a fine ballroom and a pretentious mahogany bar with plate glass mirrors for the period from 1910 to 1914, I was out to White City dozens of times. During 1914, I was already taking lessons in ballroom dancing, and I got to dance a few times in that grand ballroom of the White City Hotel. Sundays were always big days out there, and I can remember as many as six of those small streetcars being hooked together each trip out in order to accommodate the crowds. There was generally band music on Sundays furnished by Baldof's military band in full uniform. Taking a ride on the roller coaster was really a death-defying experience. The big Ferris wheel was touted as the tallest one west of Chicago for a time. There were a number of concessionaires of various sorts, a bear pit, an eagle roost, and believe it or not, a bathing beauty beach replete with eight or ten bathhouses. And then we get back to our little quote that we read earlier about the bathing suits. <laughs> I My personal favorite is that they look more like circus clowns. <laughs> I know. It kind of fits with the whole atmosphere of uh -huh. White City. Yeah. Just poopy. And we're about to see like a big change in suit styles, right? Between probably a little, at, you know, around the t time mm -hmm. White City kind of starts ending. Yeah. We go into the war years and as, as time went on from those clown-like suits, right? <laughs> People began to place much more importance on physical exercise, namely competitive swimming. And so swimming suit trends changed drastically for women. From the oversized clown dresses of the early 1900s, to the more svelte and revealing suits of the war years. One woman in particular had the most influence over this new style. Her name was Annette Kellerman, and she was an Australian professional swimmer. In 1905, she was to do a performance
sense of skill for the royal family, which would require a modest yet aerodynamic suit that had not yet been worn or created. So they created a one-piece wool suit, which they needed to make as form-fitting as possible, uh, but still to cover up most of her parts uh, so that she could do this for the royal family. It was designed especially for her, but women across the world took note and slowly but surely the design became the norm. Uh, Not without some arrests. This is when we see a lot of those like showing too much sort of situations. Annette was actually arrested herself on a beach in Chicago for wearing that very same suit. But these wool suits were kind of the new rage. um, And though they were heavy, (laughs) they were actually made with a stitch that would prevent them from stretching when wet. And then even better for the warrior years, these patterns could be easily acquired, and then you could make them at home in your own style and colors. Just a quick note, Annette, if you don't know about her, it's plenty, it's it's worth a Google. Uh, She went on to become the highest paid vaudeville star of her time, and then transitioned to a silent film star, and she is incredibly beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So yeah, now we're on to wool, (laughs) and they're tight. <laughs> I really love the suits of that oh, period, and I, I want one. Me too. And we, we need to bring them back. Yep. Any knitters out there that feel <laughs> so inclined to make us some bathing suits? Okay, so we're going to back up just a tiny bit because let's talk about what happens, how Silver Beach goes, yeah. goes down. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, it, it probably started with that no alcohol. <laughs> and then in 1910, you get spectators were reportedly horrified. When Mr. Chandler, who was the investor, just dropped dead from a stroke in the Silver Beach store. So his partner, Mr. Gwynn, you know, kept it going with help from others who leased the various buildings and attractions. But it feels like the loss of the financial support was continued that downhill slide there. Uh, He hadn't left a will and he had a daughter who came to take care of his affairs. But, you know, she probably wasn't necessarily as interested in bankrolling a weird carnival (laughs) in Washington State. So presumably some funds dried up at that time. And of course, the seasonal operation was always problematic. You know, what do you do with a Ferris wheel during the rainy off season? (laughs) Throw a big tarp over it? I don't know. You do nothing. Put the big dirigible Um. over it. So it's kind of frustrating because there's not really like a conclusive article that we could find anywhere saying like, this is when it closed. Um, you start seeing the last ads in the paper in 1916, and then 1917, there's none. Mm. So that corresponds with the entry to World War One. I've heard Jeff Jewell, the archivist at the museum, has said, you know, it could have been influenced by the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, which definitely closed public amenities, theaters, and all kinds of things. But the lack of mention in 1917 seems it could have been a little earlier I did find a mention of it being considered for a military camp Mm. also in 1918. So it seems to me like, you know, the mines had just shifted to the war effort and the amusement park was not really, just wasn't doing it for people. Yeah. (laughs) And probably wasn't paying any money. So. Right. Yeah. We know after the war in 1922, the property was purchased by Pacific Atomized Fuel Company because a coal seam had been found under the site as early as the 1890s. And apparently this seemed like a bit of a better (laughs) financial prospect than the amusement park. Uh, So the hotel was converted to a bunkhouse for the miners. Some of the carnival equipment was sold and carted off. Others converted uh, into mining or operation buildings. The, The structure that housed 
sells the carousel uh, was actually supposedly turned into the blacksmith shop. <laughs> it's just depressing. That's cute. Yeah. The mining operation, I mean, this is going to come as a shock. The mining operation didn't last long, <laughs> only a year or so. There were labor strikes and it just wasn't a profitable enough piece of property. Around the same time, in the early 1920s, um, as White City became a coal mine, some other bathing resorts were developed on the waterfront, uh, which we're going to talk about in our next episode. What became of the White City? It sat vacant for a while. I think the coal company was just sitting on it as potential maybe will reopen. And then a 1930s Sanborn fire insurance map shows it labeled as coal prospect, not in operation. (laughs) So there's that. Not long after it was platted and sold as residential lots, the first houses going in as early as the 1940s. So yeah, if you're out there on Silver Beach, I know a a lot of my friends live out there, you would never know it was a little baby Coney Island for the time. Yeah. There's a bear pit. No sign of it left. Yeah. And uh, on Lake Whatcom, we got Bloedel Donovan not long after that as a lakefront park site. That was, I think, 1946. So that was donated by Lumber Kings Julius Bloedel and J.J. Donovan, who had taken over the old Larson Mill at Lake Whatcom and operated a big lumber plant there for years. And actually, I was surprised the lumber mill was still operating when that park first opened. So you can see it just smoking away in the pictures in the background. There's logs. Yeah. And (laughs) very few or very small trees compared to how it looks now. But we're going to talk more in our next episode about kind of that weird relationship between industry and some of our parklands or brownfields and green spaces (laughs) and just public access to waterfront spaces in general which is a big part of this whole scene it's a big part of that scene a big part of our scene today yes trying to reclaim some waterfront yeah uh, yeah so tune in next episode but before we go final thoughts wrap up what do you what do you think where did you go to swim when you were little you already told us about your bathing suit you had an old bathing suit well was the what was the swimming hole for you because you are a you're a belly hamster through and through so i grew up my parents still live right by whatcom falls park yeah And so that was our swimming holes and just spots in the creek. And in fact, there was a boy's hole and a girl's hole. That's dirty. (laughs) (laughs) And I imagine at one point they actually were kind of segregated. Yeah. But But they were just known as that. That's just what we called them. (laughs) I was like, where are you going swimming? And then, you know. We, I didn't really go to Bloedel Donovan that often, sometimes, occasionally, but mostly like I had a friend whose grandma lived on the lake and so we would go to her private dock and swim there. For sure. So that's where I swam, but mostly Whatcom Falls Park. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Nice and clean. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the creek, and I mean like... In the creek. That whole fishing pond was created as a swimming hole. That's right. The fishing derby pond. Yeah. And there used to be these creepy bathhouses kind of back in the woods, the trees right there behind the derby pond. I think they're gone now. But I remember as a child just being like, what are these weird kind of moss covered old, you know, brick buildings in the trees? (laughs) And was told they were the changing rooms. And I was like, for what? Because nobody swam in that yucky fishy pond. Even at that point. No, it was just fishing derbies by then. I know. It's crazy. (laughs) Swimming holes changing over time. Oh, that was good, Bellingham tidbit. I love that. The boy's hole and the girl's hole. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have much to add. I grew up in Southern Oregon, and the, the body of water nearest me was an irrigation ditch where <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice one. Yeah, that's uh, fun. And we would catch tadpoles in there. Uh, that was fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you know, no glorious beaches yeah. of the Puget yeah. Sound for me. But. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's wrap it up because we're going to come back yeah, next time. Yeah, we're we'll going to have more. something else to say. I've, I've got more beach stories, but we'll save all it right. for the next one. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> All right, thanks, y'all. We'll see you soon. All righty. Well, hey there, mama. Where'd you go? You gotta be just what you saw. That's too bad. Too bad. To that old time. Old man hits without bad weather. Put on the saddle. It was sold together. That's too bad. To listen to that old time music. We'd like to thank Devin Champlin and the late, great Lucas Hicks for the use of the Gallus Brothers song, Too Bad West Coast Blues. You can find the Gallus Brothers tune on Bandcamp, and you can find Devin Champlin at Champlin Guitars in Bellingham. like to thank you for listening to Belling History with the Good Time Girls. Check out our tours and events, read our blog with podcast notes, etc. at bellinghistory.com. And don't forget to subscribe and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Lost my hat, lost my brim, looking like a coast that's swinging from a limb that's too bad, too bad. Well, I got no bugging, I got no smokes, I look like Grandpap and all of his folks. time for more belling history. Thank you. Thanks.